All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And welcome to my little podcast show, and I where I like to kind of travel and explore around and talk about psychology and theology and religion, faith, all that, and and just kind of the human experience. And I like to touch on my own personal stories and find kind of the meaning and messages in that. And so I like I like I like sharing my own uh, my own personal experiences and and disclosing at that level and. Um, and, and then I like kind of extracting something from that and then talking about it on maybe more of a grander scale, more like it, could this be a part of our human nature, not just myself, but, but something that, uh, is, is a profound experience, uh, amongst us all. And so, uh, I, so for those who are just listening to this, I, I love, I really love to write. There's something so satisfying to me for me when I when I write and I it's an adventure it's it's something that just it's kind of this progression it's 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 unfolding for me I start with a thought maybe an experience event some story from the past and I it stays with me and I follow it out and I've learned that actually when I experience life is if something stays with me if if, if it pops into my head go with it Trust that. Listen to it. See what's there. You know, I wish, actually when I say that now, I wish when I was in school, um, not necessarily undergrad, I was kind of in a whole different state of mind then, but in my graduate program, I, I wish that that was my approach because when I, I look back, I literally, when I would sit in class, I would record everything and then and then I would, and I would just like fastidiously just have to like hold on to everything that was said and, and, and remember every line. I thought, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. And uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever really quite absorbed something. And if I, if I were to retake classes again, not that I ever would, but if that just so happened and I could relive those experiences, I would, I would just, I would write down the things that just stand out to me. Because even though in some ways it almost seemed to me that everything stood out to me, there were still things that really kind of, um, you know, would, would just kind of highlight. They would, they would hit me in certain ways. And I wish that I went back and, and stuck with those things and just wrote those out and just maybe explored that a little bit more and see what, what came from it. Because, because that happens to me today. Because when something sticks with me, whether I interact with a client, whether I have a conversation with a friend, whether I'm just on a hike by myself, and there's there's just this, there's this one standout uh, thought or line or phrase or or experience that happens, I know, ah, that means something. Let's go. Let's go with it. So, all that to say, is that with this particular piece that i wrote this was this was a story that i i that i unraveled for myself but it was a story an ancient story that uh that for whatever foreign unanswerable reason it 
was something that stood out to me. Now, this story is in these ancient writings, and some people call them the Bible. Most, Maybe most people do. I like saying ancient writings. It just has a different flavor for me. And, and for me, you know, I, it just, when I differentiated from the church, because that was part of my background, was the, it was kind of the church Christianity sector. And the Bible was often so uh, almost deified in a way. Uh, it was, it was almost this holy grail. It was treated as, you know, just this precious jewel and don't question it or whatnot, or it's, it's inerrant, it's, it's infallible. And, um, and it was really kind of held tightly that way. And it just, it just left a crappy imprint on me. Like, oh, I don't even want to read it or look at it or anything. And, and, and yet, and, and it, it, and so it really kind of, it really kind of ruined it for me. But then once I differentiated, I, I parted ways and I, I, I kind of went down my, I, well, I did, I went down my own path and I had all these different kinds of experience in life. And then my, my whole theological perspective, how, how, uh, was very different from what was taught in the realm of the church. And so that's why I don't, I don't quite I share it with people. I share some of my thoughts with the people that I trust most um, that are also kind of in that same place. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm careful about what I talk about because when you start tapping into people's belief systems, as mine started getting ruptured, it's really unsettling. It's, it feels really safe and secure to, to have this, um, this, to hold tightly to this view, right? We, we, we want to understand life. We want to sort of take the mystery out of life. We want to uh, re- reduce unknowing and, and uncertainty. And so we really hold tightly these belief systems. And man, these last several years, God, they have been ruptured. I mean, just tons of holes poked through them. And so I'm really used to this experience of like, oh shit, now what do I believe? But that, that those are precursors to something else shaping and forming. And for me, I, I find that I'm approaching life more uh, openly, that there's this flexibility, this malleability in how I see life. Now, I'm a lot more confident in a way of what I believe. And yes, there are moments where if, and it's usually with maybe someone that might have a former or a mindset that's former to the way that I believed or how I was taught, I struggle with that. And that's, you know, yeah, that's, that's my, uh, that's, that's sort of my issue that I'm working out. Um, and I, and I, so I do struggle with that, but, but there's this more for me, this embracing of what else is out there. What, there are people out there that, uh, that also are uncovering, unearthing incredible truths out there that are, is universal and um, that, that, that touches the human experience, and it's profound, and I love it. And I, I notice that the ones that, that touch that stuff, that are, that are uncovering this stuff, they live with this kind of open uh, presentation, position in the world, and they just keep asking questions, and they, and they allow the story to um, continually form and take shape. They don't hold so tightly to it. They they approach it so openly, and that's kind of how I am even with clients. Is I may see something, but I gather a lot more information 
when I allow them to share more of their story, when I do a little bit more uncovering, when I, I touch on or, or, or I hear deeper uh, what, what lies deeper or is infused in their, their story when they talk to me. So, so, it, so yeah, life has kind of reoriented in this kind of way of, of being in the world. So all that to say is that for me, when I go back to the ancient texts, the scriptures, um, there are several stories that stand out to me. I don't, I don't sit there and read it or go into it. I mean, like on a devotional kind of thing. No, it's, there's just a few stories that stand out to me and I know uh, that means something. Let's go there. Let's touch on that. Let's see what gets uncovered because the reality is that the, as controversial as the, these ancient writings have been, um, because they're mostly because they're judged from this this present viewpoint, right? That it's racist, it's patriarchal, it's it's you know it's non-relatable, it doesn't fit. Actually, I would disagree with that. I would say there's incredible um, uh, uh, messages that stand the test of time. That they're universal. That they're they're long-lasting. That they that they expand beyond just that little time frame and they're written from a very personal level from personal experiences and they're trying to these stories that are being passed down and these letters that are written and these poems and uh and, and these accounts literal figurative all over all i care about is what is it teaching me what's the message in there how do i it, it's more this moment of of I, i'm i like how it was said before it was called, uh, Rob Bell says this, is you dance with it. Um, actually, I think he references more of uh, sort of like the rabbi's take when it comes to reading the scriptures, is is you dance with it. You just kind of, you take it, you don't hold too tightly onto it, you just see kind of where it takes you. And that's been my approach when I'm writing out my uh, sort of explorative viewpoints when I'm touching these stories. So anyway, so that was kind of my preamble of, you know, I, I, I don't like, I'm not a fan of, of those polarizing sides. I, for me, I look at it and I see it more, these incredible, beautiful, vulnerable writings that touch on the ugly, the messy, the uncensored, the raw, the phenomenological weird events, the dreams, the visions. I mean, strange things that happen, um, are being recorded. And then these, these stories that have these, uh, these time-tested truths in there. Um, I keep, I'm trying to think of the word. It's like when it's, uh, like these eternal truths, maybe that, you know, these, these immortal, Ooh, I kind of like that. These, these immortal nuggets, um, that I believe are very relevant to today. Now, sure, there's aspects within the culture back then that, that because of our evolution, we we see it very differently now. But we have to look, for me, I have to look back, and, and what helps me is that there was a starting point, and there are these moments that are reflected where human is, humanity is evolving. There's this like energetic or this evolutionary energy happening in humanity where they're waking up. They're waking up to love. They're waking up uh, to... To what's wrong in the world, or what's destructive, what what actually creates division, and they're discovering this um, uh, 
these deep truths that lie hidden even in ourselves about love, about care, about meaning in life, and uh, eliminating these barriers, these divisions, that and these judgments that block us from from becoming more harmonized with one another in a very diverse way. So, oh, whew, that was a lot. So, all that to say is that for me, these these writings are brilliant, and there's humor in there, and there's sadness, and there's joy, and uh, and delight, and discovery. And so when, when I'm looking at these stories, I'm approaching as, okay, what's happening here? It's more just, I approach it with questions. So for me, this story that I'm looking at, it's about connection. It's about disconnection and mystery and uncertainty and judgment and, and love and our conflict that, that churns in us when embracing the unknown. Now this story it begins with Jesus and his disciples, and his disciples were known as kind of, actually there's probably more than 12 because there was a lot, there's a lot of, he had a lot of followers. Jesus had a lot, a lot of people kind of traveling with him. Um, but the disciples are the, the, the 12, uh, at least the 12 men that are highlighted in these stories that he selected, that he invited to travel with him and journey on discovering the, the realities, the, the, truths of life. So it begins this story, which is, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it. <laughs> this is where I lose my credibility because I'm, I'm blanking on, I think it's um, chapter, oh, I think it's chapter eight or chapter nine in John. Oh man, forgive me. Anyway, you'll, you'll be able to kind of search it out um, when you, when I tell you the details. So it starts off, the story starts off where the disciples and Jesus are walking, and they pass this blind man. And it says, it specifies that this man was born blind. Now, what's interesting is it then spurs this question in the disciples that they ask Jesus. They, they say, uh, regarding the man's blindness. So they, uh, they say, Rabbi, which was the, like the Jewish teacher in the day, Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, of the whole story, by the way, I only cover ha a part of the story. I don't even cover the, the last half because it's this whole examination process that the Pharisees go through because they're, they're dumbstruck. They're, um, or they're dumbstruck? Yeah, dumbstruck, dumbfounded by this man who's been healed. And they bring in his parents to, you know, to, uh, for them to get uh, all the facts and data because they're, they're so rattled by what just happened. Anyway, so I don't even really go into that. What I do go into is this beginning. And this question is actually where I stayed for a long time. Because I thought, this is fascinating. Why are they asking this? Like, what does that mean? And why is it, why is it that they talk about sin? Because, and I'll, I'll be honest with people, and, and is I don't like the word sin. I, I don't like it, but I'm going to reframe it to something that I like a lot more. But that was their way of framing the world. When they used the word sin, that was so embedded in their way of understanding life and trying to piece together the things that felt off or that they didn't understand or whatnot. But so anyway, so I'm, I'm jumping the gun. So this question is where that the disciples ask is where I really loiter. 
And so I'm asking myself, one, why do they even ask this? And why, so why this specific question? And why do they believe that this had to do with sin? So then I asked them, well, then what is sin to them and what's their view of it? Now, I'm going to go back and forth here. So we're going to go to the future or we're going to go to the present and then we're going to go to the past. And so, so stay with me. So have you ever encountered the unknown? Which probably the obvious question is uh, yes. But have you ever encountered something unknown to you and it escapes any kind of concrete rational thought? Like you just don't know why the hell it happens. It's just the, the answers, the understanding is elusive. Which, by the way, often happens to us because we're experiential beings. We live in the unknown. We're often encountering the unknown. So we, we live in a big question of what is that? But, but have you ever had that, that experience where it just something just itches at you and you have to scratch it? Like you, you have to define it. You have to know. It bothers you if you don't. Well, this is our human experience. This is our condition. This is, this is wired in us. And whether we want to admit it or not, we're, we're, we live in the unknown. We're tenants of it. It's, it's where, it's, this is where we, we live and we encounter often phenomena, phenomena or events that escape our understanding. So, but when, when that happens, when we come face to face with that, we immediately want to know. And we want to define it based off of our own viewpoints, our lens, the way our tribes uh, constructed understanding of the world, and we uh, we adopt that, we absorb that, and so and what that does is it creates this. If I if I can eliminate unknowing, and not go into it, not explore it, but from a distance, I can eliminate it uh, with my perspective, right? That it's good, bad, right, wrong. It should shouldn't be there. Um, you know, we put labels around it. Well, that creates this this temporary feeling of security and safety. I don't, I don't, okay, whew, I don't, I don't have to go into the unknown. I don't have to see what that's about. I can, okay, I've, I've categorized it. I'm good. I can move on. But that's what happens. And it covers over this reality that we live in a universe, in a world that, in life, that is jam-packed, saturated with mystery. And we're, often unfolding. I mean, think about it. You may have your day plan, but you don't know what's going to go on in your day. You don't know the interactions you're going to have, the feelings that are going to come up in you, whether it's past stuff that is unprocessed. You, you just don't know. We, and so, but we're at times because we've experienced, my opinion, we've experienced some deep injury early on in life that actually um, it, it ruptures or disrupts this open engagement with living in in our lifetime in the world with uh, with this excitement for mystery but because when we're we've have these deep pains in us we and that go unhealed and, and unrepaired that we we end up trying to uh, uh, demystify mystery and create as much certainty as we can so, um, so this is our knee-jerk reaction, our automatic kind of ref reflexive response to the unanswerable. So, so here's the thing. When they ask this question, the disciples, it comes from this place of unknowing. They have no clue. They don't know. It's a great question in a way of, why is this man blind? But it's interesting how the question they ask and how they phrase it. 
So these theories that they have, they're just they're very intriguing to me. And this is what happens when they the when they encountered the uh, the unanswerable, the mystery of this man, they jumped right into this theory of sin. So here's the thing. This question they ask honestly is no different than than these questions that churn inside us today. Um, and I don't mean just in the religious part of the world. I, I imagine that in most of us, we will jump to conclusions when uh, when we interact. Well, not not yet interact. When we kind of toe the line with, I don't know what this is. I I don't. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so so what's interesting about this question is they ask specifically. So who sinned? Was it this man that he was born blind, or was it his parents? Well, that's even weird. Like, like, why would this man be at fault in a way? You know, why in birth? What he was, according to them, sinning. That doesn't make sense. Why? Why would this be their question? So here's the thing. Let me fast forward to today. So this message is not any different than what happens in our world, our present day. In other words, the I, this question that they ask, let me reframe it to the familiar nature versus nurture quandary. So when they asked who sinned, was it him or his parents, this appears to be what's implied in their question. Right, so we reframe it as: Was he born this way, or was this caused by his upbringing? And that's a natural default of ours. But I'll argue though that when my my thought on this is: When we ask that question, we don't ask it with curiosity and wonder and want really wanting to know and understand the story of the person. It's kind of done from a distant, detached place. That's that's more propelled by judgment. So when they ask this, when the disciples ask this, it comes from this lens from which they evaluated their foreign experiences. They basically wanted to know, and this is my language, who screwed up? You know, who, who, did, the, who did the dirty deeds, the bad deeds that, that, that got this guy blind? So back then, and I would even say today, uh, although maybe more on the religious side of things, or, or end of things, I'm not sure outside of that, but... Uh, they often attribute maladies, tragedies, traumas, um, or the quote-unquote unacceptable behavior within society to be sin itself or precipitated by sin. And and sin to them was very centered around morality, right? Good or bad behavior. And, and that this was contingent upon standards that was in the stories in Scripture that, was, that were apparently set by the divine. Do this, don't do this. If this happens, this will, right? And so they lived in this very um, black or white, literal mentality. Um, and and they, it was their way of framing things that felt off. And, and it, it, in a way, worked for them back then. I mean, I mean, it kind of helped capture what was going on, in a way. Or, or it, in their, I would say, maybe in a more const- their constricting, constricted mindset or awareness or consciousness, this is, this is how they would evaluate uh, 
these experiences in life and these behaviors. Now, if one veered away from these standards and norms, it would then be deemed sinful. And then that would result, uh, according to the 600 plus laws back in the Old Testament that they were to adhere to, uh, the requirement would be you'd have to pur purify yourself, wash yourself, cleanse yourself, do uh, sacrifices uh, to, to God, to the gods, <laughs> um, well, to God in, in the uh, uh, Jewish culture, um, to purify oneself of transgressions or to have to face to suffer the consequences of being ostracized, kicked out of the camp, or put to death. Now, the thing is, though, for me, and I look back from my mindset now, because I really wrestled with this concept of sin. I'd never liked that word because I grew up in the, obviously growing up in the, the church culture, it was like that was just a word that was constantly used. If you felt bad, it's because you sinned. It was, you know, it was it was, <laughs> it was sort of the... Uh, the diagnostic terminology for a lot of things that people thought felt wrong about. Um, so sadly, though, the, I believe this kind of understanding fell short of producing any kind of real deepened understanding or, or even change or pers on a personal level or societal level. And it, it in a way, for me, it, it created disconnection from my own self or from the other person if we just kind of jumped into categorizing something as sin, labeling it. And so what I noticed is that it functions solely at the surface of the behavior and it prevented something more powerful, something more expansive happening, this venture into our internal self to discover the details, the greater story behind the actions. Instead, it remained at an unconscious level and it fueled a disconnection in life on a self and relational dimension. So for me, sin's really kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, but I wonder if even in the mouth of humanity. Um, because it was to identify sort of these, uh, when people would quote-unquote deviated uh, away from the acceptable norms that define society that was supposedly governed by the divine, um, that, uh, that this was their way of capturing that. And... Uh, and, and so sin in the Old Testament, is, in the Hebrew understanding of it, means that it, it missed the mark. But actually, I would say that, that the understanding of sin has really kind of fallen short. And so uh, it doesn't capture the details. It doesn't capture the story or the nuances or an expansive comprehension of someone's behavior. Instead, it, what it does, it truncates a wider exploration, an invitation to listen and care for the stories inside ourselves and the other. And it has a tendency then to obstruct an opportunity for something more moving and loving and dynamic to happen between us uh, within ourselves and on a relational level. So when I go back to the disciples, they're asking this question, like it basically gave Jesus just two options. Still the common denominator being the, the cause of it being sin, but they're, they're asking, hey, Jesus, what what caused this? Did he do it? Did he screw up? You know, somehow somehow in the womb, carrying whatever his sin nature was, or did, uh, or was it was it his parents? And so they were looking for something, an answer that nestled into their 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 comfortable regions of evaluating uh, the world. And so we're not so we're not really removed from that. 
When I, uh, it's not some archaic question, not some anachronistic quandary. In fact, it's it's quite the opposite. It's it's very much embedded in our ways of uh, of encountering others, that encountering someone that's that might be foreign to us, different than us. Um, and we don't have to look very far to see that this question that's asked, this nature versus nurture kind of quandary, um, embedded in the in the heart of our own arguments over like sexuality or gender identity or various tragic diseases and illnesses. And I remember this um, this segment. I was watching the news and it was relaying this clip where there was this forum. <clears throat> And there was a, a gentleman there who was transgender, and there was a couple other people, and and then there was this man, and it really just highlighted the the um, both the men, and this man um, that wasn't transgender, <laughs> I guess you'd say cisgender, uh, he was loaded up with all these facts about biology and um, and 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 really denouncing uh, this this the transgender, uh, phenomenon and, uh, was, was really kind of firing away. And he denied any credibility around the, the psychological behind one's identity and what, what creates that. But also for me, what I felt sad and even, even, uh, angry about is that this, uh, this man did not hear this person's story. There wasn't any personal interaction. There wasn't a personal understanding. It was just he was he was so hell bent on really kind of getting this guy to see his viewpoint. Now the individual who's the recipient of this, who was transgender, became indignant, understandably, and threatening um, over the other's blat- the other man's blatant judgments, and so. I just I found myself disappointed and frustrated and saddened because there was this this man had all this judgment that was uh, infused into his facts and data and not once did he go to him and and uh, and and ask about his personal narrative. It didn't create any connection or closeness or understanding between the parties. Instead, and, and, the, and the gentleman who came barreling in with all his facts, um, didn't, <coughs> I noticed he didn't kind of come from this place, this open posture, to hearing what, what might challenge his viewpoint, his framework of the world. And, uh, and I wonder, now this is my wonder, if behind that was this man was really afraid of what he didn't know. He was scared to encounter something that was so foreign to himself. I'm not saying the man who's transgender was foreign, but for him, he ended, he was this foreigner to, <coughs> to an unknown land. He had no idea. But he was dead set on really squashing this man with his facts and getting him to see it, that, that this is wrong. So, uh, so here's the thing. This isn't new in us. Um, it's so ingrained in our humanity. And instead of opening ourselves up to learning from the other, uh, we approach uncertainty through this lens of drawing conclusions. And we entrench ourselves in these debates, getting people to kind of see it our way and, and kind of uh, 
demolish someone with our our so so-called right thinking and uh and and we entrench ourselves in these debates over the shaping of our sexuality and gender and whether our identity is biological or systemic and it's building up this arsenal of facts to convince the other that they're wrong or they're lost or they're sinning and so this <laughs> this bothered me because it just felt like something's off about this <laughs> and I, and like why is this why does this happen you know why is this even important that we would evangelize to people to convince them to see it our way when all it does is cultivate distance and segregation you know that that when we're faced with mystery and the unfamiliar we accumulate evidence to demystify to reduce to bottle unknowing and to convince the other that they're wrong or they're disordered and it just it only causes greater fracture. <coughs> so this brings me to my personal story with my dad. I watch as my, uh, my and he's still alive, I, I watch as my dad has endured from, uh, and, and is deteriorating from a very aggressive rare form of cancer. He has stage four lymphoma and has res- resulted in an like unending amount of treatment. I mean, it, I can go through the details. It's just it's been it's been awful, and it's and it's been unending, and it's where the family is just continually <coughs> um, uh, weighted down with this. What now? What's going to happen? We have no clue, and so uh, and, and so as this disease continues to beat out his chemo treatments it keeps uprising and so now he's in this place of we're moving towards him getting a bone marrow transplant but i've even have these thoughts of i don't know if am i going to be able to see my dad past 65 past 70 i don't know but when when this first happened the diagnosis finally hit or, or or showed up and they labeled my my dad's condition with with the stage four lymphoma, there was this, we were faced with this unknowing and this overwhelming sense of helplessness, right? And so having encountered this, having now been so saturated with it, we launched into this cerebral investigation of what could have brought on this horrific condition, we found ourselves focused on my dad's choices. Like maybe it was his lifestyle. Maybe it was how he ate. Maybe it was that he, um, you know, just kind of, I don't know, just just sort of sequestered himself in his room and didn't didn't go and indulge more in life. And maybe it's because he harbored this guilt and shame and you know internalized anger. And maybe the maybe those are the culpable suspects that instigated all this. But if I were to be really honest underneath all that frantic questioning was really this this vulnerability that I feel helpless. I'm terrified. I have no clue. I don't know what's going to happen to my dad. So we were we were smacked with this cluelessness of what the hell is happening. <laughs> and honestly terrified of encountering our unknowing. Now, there's been no answer to the origins of this vicious disease. 
what's caused uh, what's caused this, and yet it's exposed or sometimes my own despair and hopelessness and helplessness. I've called out to the divine, to the universe, for healing. And 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 yet, it only kind of careened into more of an uh, just more of an impotency. Like I just I stopped believing that. Like I it, I just I realized that it was disingenuous for me. I I because I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. And that was what was most genuine. Is I have no clue. And so and and my prayers were just done in obligation. And these flaccid requests for help. But what shifted for me was embracing my own state of disillusionment and unbelief. That I don't believe that. Maybe other people do, but for me, I had to come to the conclusion of this is, I, I don't. And I can't force myself. Now what's interesting, and I'm going to come back to that story, or my personal story. Now what's interesting is that the story doesn't end when, the, obviously, when the disciples ask this question, who sinned? So Jesus' response is really fascinating, and it gets exciting, and it gets weirder from here. So, so he answers the disciples' questions, and he says, neither. It's happened. This happened so that the works of God would be displayed in him. Now, this is kind of a head-scratcher. I mean, this is an odd, profound, anomalous statement. I mean, Jesus doesn't play into the whole where to begin theory. He's not, he's not even, he is not fixated on that whatsoever. He gives it no importance. And in fact, he bypasses it completely and he shatters this entrenched and constricted view of the world and people. Um, he, instead, he, he tosses that out and he responds with something more confounding that only deepens the mystery. It doesn't bother with where did it come from, whose sin is it. It just it doesn't matter to him. Now that's so alien to them around to, to the people around because, I mean that's again that's how, that's their framework. But what's fascinating about this, and this is where I take this, is that what Jesus is highlighting is that uh-uh, uh, this isn't about some sin-soaked universe we live in. This is not some cursed, disconnected, pissed off, need to please the divine universe. No, we live immersed, fueled by this loving, benevolent one, this energy, this loving energy in the world. And what's really weird is what he also says, which is, it's no, it doesn't have to do with sin. This has to do with something inside the man that, that, that God would be displayed in him. That's a weird statement. What the hell does that even mean? So what I notice about that is he emphasizes, he doesn't emphasize or glorify the miracle that's going to happen. Instead, he talks about the miracle happening inside the man, not even his blindness, the, the physical blindness. But he gives attention and exclamation to the very presence of this loving universe, this source of love, inside the person. So here, here Jesus just runs counter, you know, totally just kind of punctures the, their framework, their, their lens from which they view the world with this response. And, and where 
where they believe that this man was ravaged and cursed in life because of the, the family's deviant uh, uh, going against the divine behaviors, which is not necessarily true, is, is that instead, this man is now a beacon, a conduit, an illumination of love's very existence that's grounded, that's centered, that's sustained throughout the earth. That this mysterious loving energy is alive, it's pulsing, it's active, and it's not out there. Instead, it's inside, within our own being. That this divine energy moves presently within. So it was about exposing, bringing out what is inherent in this man. Because people's view of the world was that it was this very black or white. You're good, you're bad. Jesus just shatters that completely and annihilates that with his response. And what's also fascinating is that this miracle, this is not about a physical blindness that just disappears, that enables him to see on a physical, physiological level. No, it's a deeper inner scene that gets switched on in the very act of this miracle. It's a kind of scene that renders life differently. It opens one to connect to the world, powered by this loving energy, to start to see that we're not disconnected from each other. That, that there's, a, there's a harmony there, there's a unity there. And it's waking, it, and so this miracle is really about switching that on. Which then leads to the miracle itself, because this is bizarre. Now here Jesus, um, he, here I want to emphasize that Jesus operates on a different level, different register when engaging with mystery. So while the norm for humans was to approach it at a distant, kind of ostracized, quarantine, disconnected level from a detached posture in life, here Jesus instead embraces the unknown with a heart that's big and wide for all, especially those pinned under the tyranny of shame and judgment, isolation that is so rampant in humanity and created by humanity. So instead, he moves with this active embrace. He doesn't see the sin, and he doesn't evaluate the man on this rubric. But he energetically moves towards him, where others would just detach <coughs> and draw conclusions. Here, he, in love, he moves in boldness towards the unknown. And he moves towards the man with care. And, and so where judgment really does create, it constricts, and it conserves relational chasms. Jesus ruptures this. He bridges the gap and eliminates it in his guttural affection for the world. So he journeys into mystery grounded in love, and he's blind to the evaluations of the status quo, and he's unperturbed by the man's condition or origins. And instead, he touches and activates the inherent worth already deep within. And what's interesting is that the miracle itself breaks all the rules. So not only is he undisturbed by the man by any judgments, his method of the miracle actually ruptures the regulations and constructs of the day. He spits in the dirt, and he makes this concoction, this mud concoction, with his spit in the dirt. It's kind of gross. And then he rubs it, ugh, and then he rubs it on the eyes of the blind man, which is kind of gross when you think about it. I mean. Can you imagine someone doing that where they spit, they spit and make mud and then rub it on your eyes? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't let, you, you would probably push that person away. 
But what's cool about this, what's unique about this, is that he throws the rule book right out the window. Because dirt is was considered, um, it was unclean. Right? If someone, if someone were, were, where it's referenced in the Old Testament in the laws is if someone were unclean to spit on you, then you're considered unclean, and then you got to wash that off, and so on and so forth. So the idea of spitting was associated with this defilement, this unclean state, and and then he, and what he does is once he rubs the mud on the man's eyes, he tells him to go and wash in the pool of uh, pool of Siloam, which is this means scent. It's a reference to the Old Testament where they'd go and they'd wash off. Now. I'm going to take this a little step further. I actually didn't write this. I just thought of this. Is because because its reference is like a disgrace, as a defilement, that really, uh, according to the Pharisees, which were the kind of the ruling religious at the time of Jesus, um, they considered Jesus kind of this unclean, something, someone who defiled. He broke the rules of the divine, um, of the Torah, and and so what's cool about this? So Jesus was considered an outsider. Uh, and what I love is like, here he is, in a sense, this unclean one who spits in the mud and puts his unclean spit under the person. And then it, and then the man goes and washes off and now he can see. And then it creates this, all this commotion. <laughs> so, so this is, this is where it's subversive. This is where it challenges the religious constructs, the political constructs, the, the way, what was wired, constructed in, in the human experience. And it, it breaks the rules. And, um, and so, so Jesus here, uh, anomalously uses the very elements of nature, both spit and dirt. And I believe it's to accentuate and, and send a very different message than the one deeply rooted within our culture. That what we've judged to be impure, dirty, or clean, unclean, or repulsive might hold the very properties of healing and love. And in fact, actually, they might in, uh, in, be infused activated uh, um, with healing and love because it comes, it's propelled already by someone's inner passion and loving energy. That these ordinary objects and properties experience this activation that become uniquely and oddly instrumental in, in a rippling impact with those we touch or those that we're touched by. And What's beautiful is that the greater this message is that clean and unclean, pure and impure, they're all vaporous. They're elusive creations of humanity. And that when someone is rooted in this genuine love and engages in the unknown and moves towards the judged, this naturally exposes the illusion and it destroys it. And so the boundary lines between good and bad, clean and unclean, dissolve within love's realms. So what's exciting for me in Revelatory is that this message is for us and about us. I can't help but wonder, like when I look at myself, how much the presence and transformative properties of love live hidden in me, often covered over by encompassing or oppressive forces of judgment that war inside myself or others. And so I don't see the story as just, this is about Jesus doing some unique stuff. It actually touches on the, the what lives inside of us. It's, it's active within our very selves. 
And so the source that Jesus was connected to and operated out of is the same source inhabiting us. This kind of love is not found in some out, far out of reach, distant reservoir that's only accessible through repetitive ritual. If I do enough, if I do good, if I do better. And it's not limited to one man who walked the earth thousands of years ago. But in fact, it lives <coughs> and it breathes and moves now. And it's invite. there's this invitation to discover it internally. It's not out there but it's in there. And it, it reminds me too of my journey as a therapist where I was so ravaged and consumed by these expectations and these judgments like I need to get it right. I need to produce transformative outcomes for people. That I, I had to have all these tools, interventions, and I would beat myself up over it. And, and that, um, you know, for anyone who entered in my office. And so th- these messages were so highly critical and they were so consuming. And I was so focused on an outcome. And I had these quote-unquote laws that I had to do it right and be locked and loaded and ready. And I was prepared like I I would have in my head, okay, what's going to happen? Like I literally would predict what might happen in the session. And okay, I'm going to have all this prepared. I'm going to be able to say this. And (laughs) and I remember, I remember like my former therapist saying, Ben, just fly the plane. It's what they tell pilots. Just once you enter in, because you can get lost and all the bells and whistles and buttons and levers and just when you get into the cockpit just fly the plane and so what shifted and it's been this very tumultuous evolution and growing process was realizing wait a minute the magic is not in these textbooks that i started these seminars these instructional videos these you know that i thought i had to religiously attend and study and emulate and 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 implement but it was actually living in me all along, and in fact, that it was myself that's the intervention. To be in the room, present, open, listening, genuine, sharing my laughter, my tears, my anger, my truth, my experience that I'm picking up when I'm interacting with the person. That, that, and, and this being supplied by just walking in open, embracing the unknown. And it, sh- it literally shifted my engagement and my understanding of, of how to love. And what love is. <laughs> it's walking into the unknown together. It's being bold enough to share my, my honest reaction, my experience. And that's scary sometimes. And it's exhilarating, to be honest. But that's where the heart of this lie would lie. It's, you know, I, I don't, even when people ask, might ask, like, what's my bent or theory? or it's, it's, it's hard to capture because I'm just there to be honest and share a message. That when someone walks in the room, it's not they're not necessarily going to be in the same space that they were last week. Nor am I. That, that it's, it's allowing, embracing whatever's going to transpire to happen. And, and to, to be a part of the room, this, this energetic interaction happening between me and the person. And so every time someone comes in, it's this unfolding story. I'm a part of the narrative. And it's, it's the story is carried in the individual who sits across from me, but I'm also a part of it. I enter into it. And so, but prior to that, there was this overwhelming fear of the mystery and self-judgment that would happen. And it generated this requirement that I've got to do it well and right and have all this information and these premeditated plans. But the stipulation was really these veiled judgments 
that really kind of flared up in the invitation to just go in the unknown, to let myself be a foreigner, to enter into the story and the mystery. I wanted so much to end the unknowing and feel and, and, and feel these kind of fictitious securities. I'd be okay. I'd be fully prepared for anything. But it left little room for these energies of love to invite a genuine, spontaneous, in-the-moment encounter, to feel hurt, to feel pain, right? to have these reactions come up in me. So for me, this ancient story is not so, it's not ancient, it's not archaic, it's not quarantined to the past. When I really open myself up to the, the messages revealed in these words, they're brilliant, they're revelatory, they're present, they're alive in our own stories, in our own interactions in life. They live and breathe now. And whether we want to admit to it or not, we live in mystery. And we encounter these anomalies that create fault lines in our thinking, in our paradigms, in our systems. They shake the foundations from which we've built securities. And these unfamiliar experiences, they challenge and they counter what's known. But when that happens, these it's these securities become breached. I don't know what this is. And we default to judgment. Rather than allowing ourselves to feel that, man, I am, I'm a foreigner to this. I have no clue. As we stand in the unanswerable, in the immediate unanswerable, the unknowing. And it's not just that we are experience ourselves as a stranger in the context of the outside world, I really believe in when we encounter these anomalies, it's actually, I think we come to face, I've noticed in myself that I'm a stranger to myself. And what's stirring in me is beckoning me to go inward, to, to, to listen to what's there, not with judgment, but to, to really kind of discover, to find, to unravel. And what inhibits this dynamic, loving intimate interaction with the world that surrounds me is, is, um, is often this, this judgment that lives inside. And underneath that is fear and uncertainty and insecurity in myself. And so I think what inhibits this open embrace is that there's also these inhibitions to this loving, this lovingly, how do I say it? This, this, care in knowing for ourselves is this loving knowing of our own self. And that when these judgmental walls and barriers actually crumble within, it provokes a genuine seeing that we're loved, that this love has always dwelled internally, that we've always been connected to love. So waking up to this internalized love that, that we it's already lived in us, it ignites a movement to listen to our own hearts, to respond genuinely with care, to love unrestrictedly, to embrace life presently and freely and feel fully and deeply and create, to indulge in pleasure and travel boldly into the unknown. And that brings me back to my dad, that there was a moment when, when I gave up praying for that stuff because I stopped believing it. I didn't believe it. I don't think I ever did. <laughs> and once I allowed myself. It was scary because at that moment I was faced with, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no clue. I don't have the answer. I stopped trying to figure out that it was on me or I stopped judging myself that it was on me that I had to have the right combination of words that would, you know, unlock the universe and my dad would heal. No, 
I gave up. <laughs> but then there was this moment where I was, I was, I was driving home from a hike. And this genuine voice came out of me of, I know what it is, what my true prayer is, is to show me, show me how to love. That what my real desire is that, that there'd be these incredible healing connections happening between my dad and me and my family. That there'd be laughter and tears and anger and, and just the honest expressions to be real with each other. That's what mattered the most. And I tell you what, that so clicked for me. I mean, I became energized. It was the most genuine thing. It's like my lungs opened up and expanded and I could breathe even more and exhale so with such satisfaction. That made sense. And I even said in that moment when I was driving the car just out into the world there was, if physical healing comes from that, then right on. But show me... Show me, the, show me, guide me, lead me to, for these healing, transformative relational encounters. That's what matters. That's what woke up in me. That's what I believe that this weird man, strange man that people are, feel so much, or so much controversy about, Jesus that is, that walked thousands of years, that that's, he was tapped into that connected source. And he lived in the world that way. And that's what I want. That's my desire. And so the story shows us, shows me the way of partaking in the unknown. One that lives unshackled from judgment, of having to know out of these paradigms of right or wrong. But instead, when I'm charged with this loving desire to embrace the world, and when I'm attuned to the inherent worth within myself, within the other, the rules of the system, they, the game changes. The rules of the system are then revealed to be nothing more than fabricated barriers that prevent sacred experiences of rich interaction, of personal transformation happening as I open myself up to the story within the other, as I open my story up to the other. And added to this is that the unknown, in the midst of the unknown and the unfamiliar that when embraced, it actually goes through this natural demystification. We first have to go into the mystery before we even know about it, before understanding comes. And so this, it, it, it de-shrouds, anyway, the clouds part, understanding comes, demystification happens. When, when uh, as we are energized by a personal, intimate engagement with both ourselves and those that we at first projected our judgments onto, our own internal insecurities, our own inner feelings of disconnection. And it enables us in powerful ways to realize just how surprisingly harmonized we are. That the, that the chronicles we hear in the other person, the narrative we hear in them, it's really our, our, our own, in a way. That in these intimate interactions, we hear the familiar with that we've judged to be unfamiliar. These common stories that communicate our own pushed away, suppressed, disavowed feelings and pains and experiences in undiscovered parts of ourselves. 
we become disillusioned in a good way with our own illusions of what was right or wrong or good or bad. And we, as we moved in, into the untraveled, that we find, we find the familiar in the other person. That as we go deeper with them, we hear ourself and we realize, again, what illuminates to us, what awakens to us is that we're connected. We're not so different. It's then that our eyes open, that our awareness expands, that our love grows all the more. And the evaluative measures happen. As well as our own tribalistic parameters that we create, whether it's gender, sexuality, religious, political, economical, all these tribes, these gangs that we, we so naturally, automatically form so we can feel safe and known. And those begin to fade as we encounter that which is outside of our tribe that which is beyond our understanding, which has all, by the way, been constructed out of fear. All of that begins to fade away. And so life changes, miraculously changes from within. And now everything, everything is now seen as sacred, as inherently loved, as it always was. And that fear transforms into a confident love that we're not sitting up there in our crow's nest pointing out right or wrong, you know, perched high in these felt securities. But instead, we're moved from within to go into the unfamiliar and to intimately engage with it. Because that's what intimacy is, is it not? Where it's this seeing, knowing experience that progressively unfolds, unravels, it illuminates. And so we're moved from within now and to allow ourselves to experience fully the unknown to become taken up, absorbed, transformed through the inexperienced and uncharted lands that we discover in the other. I had that those moments when I didn't know, like I'd always wanted to go to Ireland, but I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I finally went. And man, was it rich with so much and what I discovered and so many stories to tell. And Or even when I step into the room, sometimes I get so nervous before certain clients come and I have to stop. I'm like, stop. Open the door and see what happens. And I tell you what, more often than not, beautiful experiences take place. And so, my hope is that you open yourself up to the unknown, to listen to the nudges in yourself, to work through the judgments that block you from listening to yourself, learning about yourself, but learning about the other as well. That's what I believe life is about. Is that we live in this unraveling mystery that's taking us somewhere and we have no clue where it's going. But we live present now and to follow those little inklings, those stirrings in our own selves. That makes life exciting. And may we, our, our framework shatter the sin, the right, wrong, good, bad, but instead we find ourselves really taking care and being attuned to the words of the other and how it hits us, how it resonates with us, what it stirs in us, why we struggle with it. I have to, ha I have to do that often 
which is when they talk, something in me constricts. Something in me is struggling. It could be the other person. It could be something in me. I don't know. But am I willing to engage and converse about that with the other, with myself? That's where this, in, these incredible, beautiful, energetic connections happen. That's where intimacy takes place. And on that note, till next time.